No, no, I'm saying, do, should we record an outro as well? No, 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 oh, that's what I'm saying. It's I like, see. We just say, oh, like, never if mind. the outro is wrong, yeah, yeah. we'll just bump the episode. And, like, I got you. Got no you. one is going to be bothered in about two weeks. Cool. Live from the Mundangerous Hatchery in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 224 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to use dragons in your game. But first the rogue traders take care of business in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the dragon slayer gets the job done in the character creation forge. Dames and Dragons. iTunes user DM Nick says, I've listened to the Adventure Zone, and this ranks up there with it. Dames and Dragons. Tumblr user Squire Nani says, It's got the same wit, action, originality, and quirky humor that made me fall in love with the Adventure Zone. Dames and Dragons. Reddit user Ferris9k asked, What other D&D podcasts are worth diving into? Not expecting anything as good as the Adventure Zone. Dames and Dragons. Reddit user Cambita responded, Dames and Dragons. Dames and Dragons. A Dungeons and Dragons actual play podcast on Don't Split the Podcast Network. Because you're all caught up on the Adventure Zone. So Shane, how you feeling? Very, very tired. Oh yeah? Uh, Ohio does that to you, I hear. (laughs) Yeah, I... uh... I took a 6 a.m. flight to a catacon um, on Friday, and that meant I got like, you know, th- three hours of sleep that night, and then just never caught up over the weekend. I mean, you were at a con, so I'm sure there's lots of sleep that you could have there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it just didn't work out. Cool. Uh, you playing good games? Play good games. Um, so I met all the broadswords for the first time. Nice. So I've known Victoria for a while, but I've never really met the the rest of the cast, so that was cool. Um, I played a Savage World Survivor game, uh, in which wait, wait, we were... you played a Savage Worlds game? I yeah, I know. Interesting. <laughs> well, it was so it was literally set as like modern day. You we were playing Survivor, like a you know a Survivor equivalent TV show, um, having to survive through challenges playing Savage Worlds. So all of that was kind of secondary to the ridiculous role playing of reality TV people. Okay, that's exactly how a Savage Worlds game should go. It should yeah. not be focused on the mechanics. Right, yeah, no, 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 and I had none. I was good at nothing. I was uh, I was a Jersey Shore type character. Aren't um, you supposed to role play? I, I, yeah, exactly. Well, mm. the role play was uh, I'm secretly British. <laughs> so. Good enough. Uh, then I also played a, uh, speaking of broadswords, I played in a D&D 5e game with Tracy Gibbons um, that she ran that was members of a theater company uh, when a haunting takes place and they have to go figure it out. Uh, was there a lot of Macbething running outside, uh, spinning around? There was not quite that, but it was um, it was fun. It was kind of over the top. Uh, we, we spent like, the beginning of it was like kind of making up what this play was. Um, that we were what this production was and all the elements in it and and who was involved it was kind of a it was a fun little like morning game um and you know uh spoiler i guess if you ever there's no way to ever there's nothing to spoil but anyway it was the director's son the director's son was behind the haunting it's always the director's son such a trope angry that he wasn't cast (laughs) Uh, and i saw on discord you got a little art practice in 
I drew, yes, I drew a Yuan T assassin. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a Yuan T libertarian was that? <laughs> uh, well, uh, he was a merchant. He was from okay. he was from like a, a merchant nation, merchant region. So he was very uh, particular about his gold pieces. But he hired a bunch of people to go into a haunted uh, haveli, which is like a an Indian, um, basically like mansion or estate, uh, and. Uh, chased down his uh his contract that had gone there and had not come out so um anyway and then we we learned kind of about the history of it but that was it was fascinating that game was a, a contessa game um that was run by uh, Miriam from the musafirs podcast uh and they are kind of creating the setting that is based on south asia um in D D, right so there's yuan t but we were in india specifically yeah, and Ruanti are from, I believe, Chinese mythology in the first place. So, yeah, makes perfect so, sense. Yeah, and so it was cool because it was kind of like playing with the tropes, but still familiar enough because it was like based in D&D, right? And then, you know, you have like elemental deities rather than necessarily like pantheons of elves and things like that. So it mm-hmm. was kind of kind of interesting. And I think Contessa doesn't go to Gen Con anymore. So I'm glad you got to hook up with them at a catacomb. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever actually played in a Contessa game, but um, Tracy's game was also a Contessa game. And I, I did it specifically because I was late to signing up and there were seats, <laughs> uh, which helps. But like there were seats available in other games, but it was just kind of more like I want to I want to specifically be challenged on like the assumptions that I'm making about the games that I'm playing. Um, and I think that's something that like the perspective of a lot of people who run through Contessa is just very different from mine. So that was, it was good. It was a definitely a learning experience. It was fun. Challenging your assumptions is also my job chain. Yeah, I know it's exhausting <laughs> and, your, and your patience. Uh-huh. I also uh, sang karaoke. So I don't know why uh, there isn't more karaoke and, and gaming crossover, at least in my experience. You're like, oh, we played all night, but why didn't we take a break and then go do karaoke? We talked about it at ThrillCon this year, but we didn't, didn't actually do it. Well, so in Dayton, Ohio, the only place to do karaoke on a Friday night <laughs> is uh, is like one of the three gay bars in town. So Great. It was, uh, we definitely piled in there for, for a night of karaoke. And uh, Bianca from Broadswords and I sang Bad Romance. Uh, which was very bad, but late enough that no one noticed. Look, if you want to know why I don't go to a catacomb, it's because it's in a town that has only one place to do karaoke. Uh huh. That's unacceptable. <laughs> I, I can't imagine what the pho is like. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Speaking of, I don't know, Shane, bad pho. Um, we're like what two thirds of the way through our Band of Blades stream uh, on YouTube. Yeah, Wednesday, seven p.m. Check it out twitch.tv slash don't split the podcast join us as we play through band of blades and we're so close to making it to sky dagger and maybe saving the world or at least giving the world a second chance or maybe just dying terribly and tragically face down in the mud which is i guess also part of the appeal yeah what's uh what's gonna happen with the star fox there's a star fox uh i have no idea will ash finally cry dun 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 tune in wednesday at 7 p.m to find out <laughs> All right, speaking of weeping, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the death world Iblis Prime in the frontier city of Meridian, the Rogue Traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra and Prophet. 
And the rogue traders have located the Eldar spirit chamber, and with the help of the spirit seer, successfully siphoned all the Eldar souls out of it, effectively ending the Eldar's influence over the entire planet. Yep, we basically stuck uh, a hose in the planet's uh, gas tank Mm -hmm. and sucked out uh, all the souls. All the things we ended up huffing a bit of soul. Uh, as it happened, it ended up with terrible amounts of corruption. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is yeah, yeah. that is a very good metaphor for it, actually. Because <laughs> uh, they're going to be used to power war machines <laughs> for Eon Den. It's literally gasoline. Hey, works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you were instructed by the Spirit Seer to begin stripping the barrows of its wraith bone and prepare to deliver it to the Exodites. Um, in the Cloud Barrens, uh, along with an invitation to return to the Webway and join the fight against Slanesh rather than sort of their existence uh, or their their current sort of plan, which is just be so um, humble that Slanesh does not notice them, cannot tempt them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's your bone stuff. Get off this planet. Exactly. <laughs> we, we would like to develop it. Um. So you guys kind of return to Meridian, you know, which is remarkably friendly nowadays that you're you're kind of getting work done for all sides and you start making preparations. Uh, you had a funeral for Trank's arm. Uh, look, we had just been through a lot. We dealt with the terrible powers of the warp, but everyone just needed to take a moment to realize what we'd truly lost, which was Trank's left arm. Uh-huh. Okay, and so in Rogue Trader tradition, we went back up uh, onto his enduring light. Everyone got in their dress uniforms. Everybody got uh, into the cargo bay. Uh, Amasek was poured. Lovely words were spoken. And Trank wept just a little bit over a relatively tiny coffin <laughs> uh-huh. that was then shot into the star. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's what it deserves. It Do you was know how, many, how many people and monsters that arm has killed? I'm not saying that attendance wasn't compulsory. I'm just saying <laughs> it was well attended. It's very, very true. I like, it, you know, it it warmed my heart knowing that uh, Trank's arm got the same kind of dignified send off that Draco's entire body did. Mm-hmm. It it seems only fitting. Yeah, I mean, you're a tyrant. <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong. Uh, of course, uh, that did give Doc some cover to go do some scheming. And collect some of that wraith bone for himself, so yay. Yeah, so <laughs> it does not take Echo, the quartermaster, very long to spot that Doc is pilfering. Uh, and so she goes and confronts him. And she finally figures out what, above the table, all of us have known since, well, the beginning of this entire game. Uh, but And that all of the rogue traders have suspected uh, but now she's uh, unable to deny it any longer. His increasingly strange behavior is, of course, because he has been irreversibly marked by chaos. Uh, she does eventually convince him. I don't know. Was it convince or more like point a gun at him and demand that he return the Wraithbone? It was demand, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, he ultimately agrees. Um, and then, that night, Doc has a restless sleep and dreams of a communion with a hideous abomination, a gigantic man with an eagle's head and wings. And it speaks to him in a strange language that he somehow understands and offers him a deal. The knowledge of the universe in exchange for service to the architect of fate, the chaos god Zeech. Okay, Shane, the notes you wrote here say uh, Doc mulls it over. It should say Doc mulls it over for half a second. And then <laughs> immediately true. says, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Sure. Uh-huh. 
That's true. And in that half second, um, <laughs> he witnesses something truly sickening. Uh, the eagle head becomes an owl, and then the human legs become hooved, like the, the hooved feet of a bull, and then the torso manifests these scintillating scales, and then the wings become dragon's wings, and then the head becomes a human head again. And all of this is just fascinating to Doc, right? He's like watching the demonic influence of Zinch live and in living color. Um, So yes, of course, a half second later, he greedily accepts this. And then as he begins to wake up in the real world, he walks away from the demon in his dreams. And the last thing he hears is the demon calling after him. She knows. That's not ominous in any way. And so he wakes up and we'll find out what happens next, next week. Wonderful. So here we are, everyone. Uh, I have been wanting to get into this new series for a while now on using different kinds of iconic monsters, uh, both as a GM and as a player. And hey, here we are, and what better monster to kick it all off than basically the namesake for RPGs? Mm -hmm. Dragons. Yep. Now, sure, dragons, you know, show up. They're probably like the most iconic monster that you're going to deal with in any fantasy setting, but they even like will show up sometimes in a non-fantasy setting. Uh, they can have a huge impact on your game, even if your party is never going to fight a dragon. You know, I think we've played tons of like even just D&D games or um, Forgotten Realms games specifically where like, sure, dragons play a big role, but you don't actually face one. But but it all like trickles down through a setting and through the way that you like players interact with uh, a, a campaign, just like even knowing that dragons are out there. Yeah. So what are dragons in our games? Well... They contain multitudes, right? Because they're, they're like actually drawn from from like real world myth. But in games, they're almost always like creatures of legend that instill terror. Um, they might be plotting conspirators. Uh, they could just be mindless killing machines. Um, in some settings, they become patrons of adventurers or even gods that are worshipped as deities. Um, th- often they are like symbolic of usually greed but sometimes other values as well yeah power um knowledge yeah uh divinity or uh, noble birth mm-hmm. so think of it this way the real world doesn't have any dragons right well like, not anymore sure we, we killed them all but now that they no longer exist uh, like all of our stories are still heavily influenced by them so like even more so should uh, a setting where dragons actually exist uh, or even something like, uh, I guess Star Wars has crate dragons, but like Eclipse Phase uh, doesn't have dragons, right? But like the iconography, like you talked about, can still definitely show up. Uh, Chinese Zodiac, um, King Arthur's Crest, I think was a dragon. Think about what is it that the dragon signifies or means and then like use those as common touchstones, even if there are no like physical big giant flying lizards in your setting. Right. Yeah, I mean, even in, in you know, like kind of a relatively recent postmodern kind of cyberpunk setting right like dragon is still a thing that has meaning right uh even if it is a you know mechanical or even like software or something like that like it implies certain things about whatever it's it's representing yeah you uh meet a crime boss and turns out their name is the dragon well (laughs) i mean you're just assuming that it's a it's a poorly named japanese or chinese character then right uh, or that we should probably do some prep and not just kick a, a door in. Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, 
Because it's a poorly named Chinese or Japanese <laughs> character, right? This is about to get very tropey. <laughs> so many katanas. <laughs> Chinese katanas? What? It doesn't matter. It's the only thing that fits in a trench coat. Cool. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, so first bad. thing you're going bad to do... Bad games, when... bad. <laughs> <laughs> Please stop it. Uh, so the first thing you want to do when you're figuring out how to use a dragon in your game is like define your dragons. How do dragons show up in whatever setting uh, you're using or in like the particular sphere of your game? And there, there are two things to think about. One is philosophy. One is physiology. The, the philosophy of a dragon, like who, who are they as a culture or a society? And this usually breaks down into two types. You have schemers. These are dragons who pull strings from behind the scenes. Um, they're going to live a really long time, typically. So they're going to leverage their immense wealth, um, their extremely high intellects, uh, the people they've bought off, all of the minions that they're they're hiding behind to you know make sure nobody knows that they're actually a dragon who like runs this mega corporation. So yeah, in that case, you want to think about what is their ultimate goal? What are they trying to accomplish, right? And and then work their schemes out from there. Um, and you can always you know, either rope the party into working for a dragon, maybe intentionally or unknowingly, or against a dragon. Again, you know, that's a reveal is, oh, well, <laughs> the big bad is, of course, a polymorph dragon. Yeah. Uh, I like to think of dragons as like um, Kaiser Soze. Like, you pulled a job. Uh, you screwed somebody over. You didn't know it, but that person was a dragon. And so now you have made an enemy of a dragon, and that is a big problem. Right. I think the other way that you represent dragons are as sort of more like primal savages, mm -hmm. right? They are monsters that terrorize the countryside that um, you either run away from or if you're powerful enough, you attempt to kill them, right? Um, I think a lot of times the like greedy, lazy dragon fits into this trope where mm -hmm. all they want to do is amass a horde and sit on it. Um, and then they're there when you come for that horde, right? Right, or the rampaging uh, dragon who's like killing cattle and you know people in the countryside, and all the peasants are running, like kidnapping uh, princesses and stuff. Yeah, it's a very it, it's King Arthur traditional dragons. Right, um, and in this instance, it's probably more important to know the physical capabilities of a particular dragon because probably the end of this uh, campaign is your party going up and trying to stab it to death, and vice versa. Right. This is where like traditional D&D tropes probably start wanting to sink their uh, both fangs and claws into your game. And you know, maybe you let them, maybe you don't. Uh, are, how are dragons differentiated from each other? Um, do their philosophies differ by color? You know, if you're doing the whole chromatic versus metallic scheme that D&D loves, uh, are they differentiated by their type? You know, you've got uh, Eastern dragons where it's not necessarily um, color or, or breath weapon. It's, you know, um, you know, element or sphere of influence. Um, you know, you can have lung dragons. Uh, is a luck dragon a fundamentally different thing in your setting? Right. Or like scaly reptilian dragons versus like feathered avian dragons. Right. Exactly. Um, are coattles related? All, all of that kind of thing is going to help you better lay out how dragon society functions um, and, and that'll bleed over into the rest of your game. So then we also have the physiological element there, right? That distinction of, you know, reptilian. Um, sometimes dragons are represented as more cat-like, 
Mm-hmm. Um, they certainly have oftentimes the attitudes of cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the disaffected nature of cats. I mean, if you were sitting right now next to a cat, you know that if it was the size of a house, it would immediately eat you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you smelled bad enough and then it would ignore you if you're lucky. It's because I'm made of cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but think about things like, uh, you know, I, I actually also think of dragons sometimes as like sharks, you know, just roving predators, like the savage kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, what do they What do they look like when they move? You know, um, sharks, other predators, big cats, you can see like rippling sinew. Uh, what do they look like when they fly? They're like these big creatures with, I guess, kind of like bat wings, really. Mm-hmm. But like, should they be able to fly? Are they clumsy like uh, like a bumblebee? Uh, or are they like sleek, more sleek like a hummingbird? Right. Yeah, there's a um, there's actually a fantasy series called uh, Temeraire, I think it is. And mm. His Majesty's Dragon is the first one. But it's um, it's it's written about a world where like the Napoleonic War is fought with dragons. Um, you mean like, it, it wasn't? Well, no, because we killed them all, remember? <sighs> History uh, always lies. Yeah, exactly. You know, Howard Zinn told me straight. He was like, a dragon's history of the United States. <laughs> but the, um, you know, like the size of the dragon plays a big part in whether they're like aggressive and like interceptors or whether they're kind of large and lumbering and they become mm-hmm. like more like bombers, right? Um, and so like in that way, like they have partnered with different groups of, of humans and are acting almost like an air force or actually exactly like an air force. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and so that physiology speaks to their capabilities and also like how they get paired together and how they work together and things like that. Yeah. Don't overlook this stuff because like the, the physiology um, is what is going to lend verisimilitude to working with a creature that is fundamentally like fan- fantastical. Right. Right. And, um, and I think dragons occupy a space too where you want them to feel special. Mm-hmm. Like you might not describe that for, you know, a minotaur that you fight six of in the dungeon. Um, but when you see the dragon for the first time, right, you want to highlight how unique and how strange like the dragon is compared to other monsters. Yeah. And part of this will be like a lack of information on the party's part. So which legends are actually true about dragons? Like, all look almost all people like real humans who are playing an rpg will have an idea of like what a dragon is in the back of their head as they sit down to play a game but that might differ with how a dragon actually is in the setting it also might differ from what people in the setting think is true about a dragon but maybe is not actually if you were the gm right those are all different multiple kinds of things right you know, do they actually have hordes? Do they do they actually sleep on them? Do they live forever? Or, or no? Are they just, you know, do they live 30 years and no one really knows? Yeah, I mean, it is, it's also possible that dragons don't generally take their dragon form mm-hmm. in, in your setting, right? Like they just, they're born that way. And as soon as they gain control of it, they stop because it's, you know, part of their culture or their sort of calculus right and as soon as they you know take dragon form again you know well probably hundreds of people are about to die right uh can they cast spells i think that is probably um pretty important to know like what is their connection to magic and that also will help you plan out both combat and their interaction with society yeah and also like their degree of sapience right like sometimes dragons are presented as slightly smarter beasts and other times they're presented as way smarter humans yeah like look at something like reign of fire 
Um, do you remember that? <laughs> do you remember mm-hmm. that movie? That isn't that a Christian Bale movie? It is a Christian Bale movie, uh-huh. so, and a Matthew McConaughey movie. <laughs> oh my God! How have I not seen this? Well, actually, I know why. <laughs> uh, it's not a great movie, but it's interesting for lore building. It, it's very much like savage shark-like dragons who like fly around the world and eat everything that moves, and that's it. Like they definitely have bestial intelligence, but like they're also terrifying monsters, right? So, like I said, this is going to bleed out into your world building, even if you are running an established setting. You know, think about where dragons fit into your setting and how have they affected the history of that setting. Like you said, in in something like Forgotten Realms, most of your dragons are probably going to shape change into people and just, like, drink a lot of wine, I guess, and amass fortunes. And, you know, I I guess play the sport of kings. Right. But in Shadowrun, uh, you've got dragons who wear very nice business suits because they are the lead leaders of every single mega corporation. So think about dragon capabilities and personalities informing these decisions. Like you said, in Reign of Fire, dragons aren't capable of building empires, right? They they're just not smart enough. That's not what they do. But mm-hmm. like in Eberron, there's no world changing event that happens without the dragons knowing it because. Like, they read the Draconic Prophecy, it's named for them, and if they don't like it, they would have intervened. Yeah, like, in order to actually have a world-changing event in Eberron, you need to come up, like, as a GM, you need to come up with a reason that the dragons aren't intervening to stop this. Yeah. You know, and you're right, it probably is, like, the prophecy says if we intervene, we're all screwed, so now you have a campaign. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You can also have just very thematic uses, like uh, in, in, in Eberron you have dragon-marked houses, but that doesn't even necessarily have anything to do with dragons themselves. That That's just the nomenclature. Yeah. Uh, in Wheel of Time, Randalthor is the dragon, but I, I don't know, does an actual dragon actually show up anywhere in Wheel of Time? I don't remember. I don't think it does. Do you think I read that far? Come on. <laughs> book three and out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the rest of us, book one's, books one to three, and then when the book five came out, you read one to five. and then <laughs> Yeah. And then, and then 11 bailed. years later, you're like, never mind. So Dark Sun, for example, has a single legendary dragon, uh, which was created through magical uh, abuse, basically. Fuckery. Um, and then just a whole handful of like competing upstart baby dragons that are, you know, sorcerer kings that are trying to amass that level of power so that they too can become dragons. Mm-hmm. So often people think of a game that deals with dragons as focusing on killing or fighting the dragon. But even if that's what you're doing, it's going to end up being such a small part of like the actual game time, right? Like you might fight five dragons over the course of an entire campaign, but most of the times your interactions with dragons will be either at a distance, you don't even necessarily know that you're dealing with a dragon, or it'll be in person while players are exhibiting a healthy amount of respect or fear. Yeah, I mean... A lot of times, like, you stat monsters out to, like, CR 22 when you talk about dragons, right? And you think, like, oh, my party's level 3, so I should use, like, a CR 5 dragon. But if you drop an ancient dragon into your game early, that they don't have a choice but to run away or negotiate. Like, Mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to fight it. And that makes them a major, like, cornerstone of your game now going forward. You know, they've interacted with a dragon like that's going to set a tone yeah i like introducing very powerful npcs one of which may be a dragon that 
the party it's an obstacle that the party is not necessarily supposed to face head on right like you mm -hmm. can't throw yourself at at a dragon when you're level three and come out ahead you can however make yourself useful to it in some manner right so I think with this way, like like a vampire, a dragon usually has like hundreds or maybe even thousands of years to amass wealth and power. Like they have resources, just hand wave that stuff. Like let them use it. If they want to have a contingency plan, if they want to have a lair somewhere, if they if they want to know people and they want to have an army, just let them have it. Mm -hmm. And then like they should have plans within plans within plans. Like you've been alive for thousands of years. You don't stay alive for that long. You make one mistake and you're dead, right? You can't be thousands of years old and not have contingency plans. Exactly. Uh, especially if you're in your lair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there should there should be some level of like, like dragons need to be enigmatic on some level. Like they are difficult to understand. And I think it's perfectly fine if, for example, that level three party doesn't quite understand why a dragon is interested in them and didn't just kill them. They don't need to understand because the dragon doesn't need them to understand yet. Uh, or like the dragon never needs to understand. Like they don't care. They just want you to do a thing. So you're going to go do it. Exactly. And like as a GM, maybe you don't quite understand why the dragon kept them alive yet. But yeah. that's fine because that doesn't get revealed till later. So think about when the party is going to meet the dragon. Um, especially when you talk about higher level dragons like they might not know that they have met them. So maybe think about a way to drop some clues or drop some hints that that dragon or that, you know, otherwise innocuous person is actually a dragon. Right. It doesn't need to be obvious, but you know, things where you can look back, you know, 10 levels later and be like, Oh wow. Oh my God. Like those, there were definitely signs there. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Think about how it feels to be in the presence of a dragon. Uh, I mean, in the first place, older dragons usually have frightening presence right like if they if they want you to be afraid of them there's an excellent chance you're going to be very afraid of them mm -hmm. but even even beyond that like even beyond the mechanical effects like how big is this dragon is it the size of a house is it even bigger than that i mean like in, in a lot of fictional settings like they can be hundreds of feet long mm -hmm. um what does it smell like? Uh, if, if this is a chromatic dragon that breathes fire, does it smell like brimstone? Does a copper dragon smell like, you know, chlorine gas? I always feel like there should be something bestial about a dragon, even if it's shape changed into a humanoid. And even if it is one of those extremely intelligent, genteel dragons who is, you know, even, even a lawful good gold dragon or, or like a, you know, a kindly, pleasant Bahamut who's like, you know, in the form of an old man with canaries around his head. There should be something, a glint in the eye, a sharp tooth that isn't there anymore, like something where, you know, they're they're not disgusted by like the sight of a carcass because they eat raw cows, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, or just like a uh, like a lingering eye towards something of value nearby. Like mm -hmm. Yeah, like yeah, some something uh base right. about them you know mm -hmm. uh, i really like uh the description of smaug the first time that bilbo sees him in the hobbit um where like tolkien just just describes the way that he looks and what it's like to be in front of him even though bilbo is relatively safe because he's invisible mm -hmm. he's still like a terrifying monster right 
Um, the other thing is like, especially for lower levels, like you can pretty much throw stats out the window because an adult dragon should kill a human in one hit. <laughs> like it doesn't matter what magic you have or what gear you have. Like if you are low level facing a dragon, he's just going to eat you at will. And same with any of your companions. Yeah, there there should be a sense that things are out of your control. Right. Uh, consider why it is that the dragon even needs these humanoids. Uh, again, this could just be enigmatic. It could be unanswered right now, but there should eventually be some sort of reason that the dragon isn't doing this on their own. And that may just be, you know, laziness. And then also think about what is the end goal for this dragon? Like, it is almost always somehow selfish. Like, it might be good for everybody and better for me, but it's still better for me. Um, like, dragons always have this hubris where they don't respect creatures that are not other dragons um, or like literal deities yeah even like a traditional lawful good gold dragon should be looking down on humans right uh and and should be doing things that are good for dragons or good for the world or maybe like a nation but probably Mm -hmm. doesn't care all that much about the life of a village right one single nation on one continent which is you know not going to be here the next time i wake up yeah, like I, I feel like dragons must see humans as so barbaric mm. given how much time we spend going to war with each other. Over nothing. Over over literally nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even worth a horde. Right. All right, so I think maybe this is why uh, most people have come here to this episode in the first place, perhaps. Uh, but at some point, you will probably have a party fight a dragon. So, what's the first rule of fighting a dragon? Uh, a dragon never fights alone, on their own. You've got to get through all of their minions first, and there should be lots of minions. Like Now, this might be mean that like the end final battle is mostly just the party and the dragon, but in order to get there, they need to have earned even being in front of the dragon, right? Could you even find the dragon? Mm-hmm. Uh, could you find the lair? Uh, and how many like hordes of lower-level creatures, traps... Uh, nobles who were throwing armies in your way, did you have to get through before you could actually face the dragon? Yeah, and don't forget, like, cultists, right? And not <laughs> yes, just, like, always. not just kobolds, but, like, people turn to worshipping dragons as well because of their awesome power. Like, that is a, a very common thing. Lots of people will be trying to prevent you from doing this. Um, and like you said, like, sometimes it's a noble who is sponsoring you to do this and, and giving you resources to be successful, but other times, like, you know, the king might have an arrangement, right? Like if you pay your tithe to the dragon, the dragon doesn't bother you. And a group of adventurers going and talking back to a dragon is going to cause problems for the kingdom. It's basically the base state of Dark Sun. Yeah. <laughs> Please stop talking to dragons. Yeah. Um, another thing, if I'm running a dragon, um, I will also try to make sure that a dragon is only getting get into like a physical altercation if it has the advantage. Uh, and that means it's either in its lair or it is in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, if a dragon can fly away, why wouldn't it just fly away? Right. Or why does it need to bother with you? Uh, so it is either, if, if a battle is ensuing, it is either going to control the terrain that this battle is taking place in, or it is going to keep its distance. Uh, either leaving or basically just staying at a distance so that nobody can hurt it. Right. 
Um, I think the only exception to that is going to be like some of the marine dragons, like um, like black dragons in a swamp, or um, what copper dragons are the are the water based uh, metallic. But anyway, there there are dragons with swim speeds, um, and in a way, swimming is actually more dangerous for most of a dragon's threats than flying is, so I, I'm sure they would rather drag this fight underwater where it is dark, you can't see anything, you can't move quickly, um, it has all of the advantage, and also if you stay long enough, you drown. Right. Uh, <laughs> and if you were smart and cast water breathing or you're aquatic, well, great. Now I'm going to fly straight up and we're fighting this in the air. Exactly. Can you like, do you'll, both you'll, of those things? Because I can never do both. Do both. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so dragon's strengths to keep in mind. Fly speed, occasionally a swim speed. They're very strong. They're very durable. Your breath weapon is both an area and basically a long-range attack. Mm-hmm. Um, they also get multi-attack. Uh, a lot of times they get something like a bite and claws and or tail. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're almost always very perceptive. I think this dates back to Smaug um, in D&D, they almost get almost always get uh, blind sight, so it's very, very hard to sneak up on a dragon. Uh, and then, of course, the one true superpower, they're rich. Yep, dragons are Batman. So they have magic items. Like, that is something that I think gets under-considered under a lot by GMs who think, like, dragons in the, in the DMG are underpowered. Or, sorry, in the Monster Manual are underpowered. Like... Dragons have hordes. They have access to the items in the hordes. They can shape change to use those items as they would like to. They should be, you know, if they're finding a, you know, a staff of power in the horde of the dragon, the dragon should be wielding that staff of power against them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> have they heard about other adventurers who have fought this dragon? Well, they died. Right. <laughs> and the dragon has their stuff now. Oh, it's what dra- it's what dragons consider interest. Yeah. Like, I, I, I amassed a horde and now I collect interest from adventurers who come to try to take it from me. I uh, really like the explanation that uh, Eberron gives for like why dragons have hordes. It's that there are terrible leftover artifacts that nobody should ever use. Uh, so all the dragons are like, well, the only people who can keep them safe are us. We'll just start amassing them. Mm-hmm. But then that's sort of carried over to every other neat, shiny, potentially useful trinket. Right. It, like if If these are supposed to be covetous creatures, why would they not? have a ring on every finger mm-hmm. they do have weaknesses though yep so they are obviously a high value target uh they know this so they have limitations on how much of their power they can openly display in a lot of circumstances mm-hmm. yeah especially if their shape changed uh, but even in a battle like everybody knows use your biggest stuff on the dragon attack the dragon ignore the minions mm-hmm and that's that provides kind of an action economy problem, right? Like they have legendary actions, but they're still going to be limited in how much of their arsenal they can bring to bear in a given turn when they're alone, especially mm-hmm. when they're outside of their lair. And I think one of the more interesting weaknesses that you can use for a dragon is a personality trait. Like I, I like to think of it this way, like pick a moral failing that a particular dragon will have. And, and maybe this is just like one of the seven deadly sins, right? And and crank it up a little bit so that it can potentially be leveraged that the party can use against this dragon if they've, they're perceptive enough to notice it in the moment or if they've done their research ahead of time. So like, sure, all dragons are, are prideful. Just give them all that flaw, right? But a particular dragon might be slothful, right? Like 
it's easier to sneak up on this dragon while they're sleeping on their horde or mm-hmm. envious you know um if you happen to mention the name of a, a rival dragon that you researched they might actually listen to you instead of uh, eating you first i i also like wrath right like you can yeah. you can provoke dragons into picking fights that aren't necessarily wise for them if they are naturally wrathful like you know maybe if you agree to escort the king's envoy um and then just bait the dragon into eating the king's envoy <laughs> like now the dragon is suddenly going to war with a nation which maybe wasn't part of his plan right or or you know maybe it's even i urinate on part of your horde yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh my god like now the dragon is going to eat you and probably only you to the exclusion of maybe i don't know the wizard right so tactics for a dragon number 1 breathe early and often uh-huh this use is your most powerful of... thing yes and you also need the recharges so <laughs> use it if you have it and roll as much as you can to recharge mhm um and and that means strafing and kiting right breathe and then leave until you can breathe again yeah breathe and leave <laughs> Uh, the nice thing about leaving is that most PCs can't follow you where you're going or they can't follow you for long. So if you just fly far away, some PCs can fly, but they probably can't match your fly speed. Or like you said before, just dive underwater and you're safe until you decide to come out again. Right. Um, the other thing that dragons should do is separate party members um, from the herd, as it were, and then kill kill them. Focus, focus down single targets. Um, and then... Dragons are smart, so they understand the importance of confirming the kill rather than leaving, you know, unconscious bodies lying around. Um, I especially like the idea of just, like, picking somebody up in your jaws, flying in the air, and dropping them. Let yeah. gravity do the work for you. <laughs> uh, right, that probably doesn't uh, cause take any actions, right? Like, you've clawed them to death. They're in... They're, you're, you're, your claw's kind of hooked into them. Just fly away and then drop as a free action. Right, exactly. Uh, geek, geek the mage. If you're the dragon, kill the guy in the tunic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not worried about fighters. You're worried about spellcasters. Yeah. Uh, don't let people climb onto you. That <laughs> if someone is dumb enough to climb onto you, then they probably have. They probably know something you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one good thing here to remember is that almost all dragons are going to be immune to their own breath weapons, so, and. You've got a neck like a snake, so if someone is on you, just breathe on that part of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, or alternatively, like that is the the story weakness point where the PCs need to take this risk of climbing on them in order to have a chance, right? Like that's the that's the David and Goliath moment, right? This is the only way, <laughs> right? Um, you also want to avoid suspicious magic weapons. Um, if they don't know what the magic weapon is, they definitely don't want to get hit by it because turns out there's lots of things out there to help with dragon slaying. So many things. <laughs> and you will know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of which, if you see one of those dragon slaying items and you're like, oh, uh, I know this one. <laughs> it's killed other people before. Uh-huh. Just have have an escape plan. Exactly. Right? Like, you built this lair. It should have a way out. And and I think part of the reason that that is the case, no matter where you are, like there's a contingency, there's a way out, is that the dragons are one of the few creatures, one of the few monsters that when you're running them, you you want to play the dragon like it thinks of itself as a player character. It is maybe thousands of years old. 
it only needs to lose one fight to die. So it's going to play the odds. It's going to play mm-hmm. it safe. It's going to make sure that it doesn't go down to like one lucky swing or one lucky crit. Right. Um, and then keep in mind, tactically speaking, the best tactics for a memorable and like rewarding fight for the players are often different from the best tactics for the dragon itself. Yeah. Um, those strafing tactics are actually just frustrating for PCs typically. Um, so if you don't telegraph it and they don't have a plan for that, that's going to actually be a not fun encounter. Um, so as always, when you're throwing combat encounters at your players, right? think of what the purpose of the battle is. How is this battle advancing the story? Um, what are we supposed to be gaining from fighting this fight? Because it's possible that the fight itself is going to be less fun than whatever else is going on around the fight or whatever context the fight is coming with. Yeah, that's why it's good to have those non-combat hooks, those personality traits that the uh, party is going to be able to leverage to get the dragon to make a mistake. Or something that looks like a tactical mistake, but that the GM knows is is really just the way that I'm going to make this a a fight that is winnable. Right. All right. So I think a lot of the uh, interest in dragons is that people want to play characters that have something to do with dragons. You might be a dragonborn. You could be a a kobold. Uh, you might be a sorcerer who is dragon blooded, or just a any character who like has dragon blood far back in their backstory. Mm-hmm. So, if this is your character, think about what is their connection to dragons. Like, are they in awe of dragons? Are they angry about dragons? Do they feel ownership of or like responsibility for the actions of dragons, or do they resent them for those actions? Yeah. Um. Culturally, do you know how to interact with dragons? Have you been around them? Uh, or is your connection maybe just only blood? Like five generations ago, I have a dragon sire. I may not even necessarily know that, but dragons will know that. Mm-hmm. They, they'll be able to smell it on you. Right. Um, and I think this comes up a lot with, well, like all of these really is just like, how do dragons see these these creatures in their interactions? Like, mm-hmm. Do they see them as... Uh, useful supplicants do they see them as abominations do they see them as like maybe not quite children but at least distant relatives yeah and this is a a good hook you can offer up to your your gm like make it frustrating right at the beginning right the thing that you want the dragon to do is the thing that the dragons don't do if you want acknowledgement they ignore you if you just want to be left alone they either want to kill you because you're an abomination or they're like no we own you because we made you right And I think it's important, like, wherever you're drawing this interest or wherever you have this experience with dragons, like, dragons should be treating you differently or treating that PC differently because, like, you have this touch, right? Like, it's very unrewarding for the dragonborn to meet a true dragon and get treated like any other PC. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you've got dragon in your name for a reason. (laughs) Yeah, like, I probably picked this particular like pc race so that i can have this interaction right here that we are doing right and especially especially if you take one of those like prestige uh classes or paths like where you become a dragon it's like it's like i'm super invested in this please let this pay off i mean how many times did uh brand who was a dragon sorcerer and i think had advantage on persuasion with dragons was like wait 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 i got this i got this even I, if you didn't necessarily have it, I literally never had it what? until until I started rolling like fifties. 
Uh, and then on top of that, think about how other people will treat a person who is dragon touched in some manner. Mm-hmm. Is it fear? Uh, is it, I don't know, ridicule? Ridicule is, is, I think, an interesting one because it's not something that I think someone who's dragon blooded reacts too well. Oh, that was such the response for Brand. Like everyone else just ridiculed him for not being able to handle dragons, even though, like, you know, like Brand was very proud and very much trying to figure this all out and, and trying to, you know, lead the party through this and doing as successful a job as was possible by anybody. <laughs> and yet, like, still wasn't friends with the dragons and therefore everybody just rode Brand about that. <laughs> well, that's that's just our group. It's just Brand's too thirsty. <laughs> you just, you, you want it too much, man. Exactly. I, I mean, I will say he definitely smoothed the path for dealing with the dragons. Like no one immediately got eaten. So, hey. Exactly. Well, <laughs> I mean, other than that, you know, that one dragon that tried to eat us at the beginning. Oh, sure. Yeah. But, you know, that one wasn't talking. <laughs> uh, and then I think one sort of niche area uh, that I have always wanted to play but never have is Council of Worms, which is a setting where everybody plays a dragon. Like a like a true blood dragon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a nation run by dragons. I, I could see some sort of like Council of Worms slash birthright setting, which would, might, might be cool. Yeah. And, you know, it's not unbalanced because if everybody gets a dragon, it doesn't matter that... You know, those are hideously overpowered characters. Right. You just scale up the level of threat to those dragons. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's real quick talk about magic and magic items for dragons, because obviously it plays a big role. Mm -hmm. Think about if your dragons have an innate connection to magic, whether they can cast spells. Maybe they're the source of all magic. Mm -hmm. Um, They're also often keepers of knowledge about artifacts, about epic level spells about strange experiments or strange calamities they're you know the early foundations of the cosmos or the uh, multiverse like how all the planes interact things like that yeah even if you are not playing a character who's been like dragon touched certainly if you are a wizard or anyone who's interested in in magic or or spells or even history dragons have a, a huge allure yeah uh most items aren't going to be sized for dragons but I would say at the very least, every dragon is going to have a few extremely powerful items. You just pick the best of uh, the best of the bunch because you have, you know, access to pretty much whatever you want. Right. Um, I like the idea of having to like you're going for this ring that the dragon has that is known for wearing that's very powerful. And when you get there, you realize it's the size of a monster truck tire. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how are we going to carry this thing out it's supposed to resize it uh, rolls it, it i definitely guess doesn't, right? <laughs> in it we got in it and then and then rolled down the pile of gold right <laughs> um remember that dragon layers don't need to adhere to whatever the rules of magic are in your setting like just just make a layer that is mm-hmm. both interesting and strong yeah, I mean, you know, telegraph it to the players so they understand that the rules of magic have changed, but there's no reason that they can't live in that weird kind of interplanar strangeness. Mm-hmm. Right. Don't don't calculate how much like the defenses will cost. Your dragon had a thousand years to build it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, items sort of break down into three categories. There are ones that kill. This is going to be dragon slaying gear. Uh, you know, your dragon slayer sword. Uh, Also things like elemental resistance, anything that's going to be super useful to people who are trying to kill dragons. Mm -hmm. 
I guess invisibility, although that's actually much less useful than you'd think. Yeah, you've still got to make some pretty astronomical checks. Mm -hmm. um, there are also items that emulate dragons, so like dragon masks. Uh, and these are going to be the things that your dragon-touched characters are the ones who sort of like worship or in awe of dragons are most interested in, things that mm -hmm. like let you emulate flight until you actually get real wings. Right. And then there are the uh, items that control dragons. These are probably the most dangerous. These are MacGuffin plot points, the orbs of dragon kind, for example. Uh, I shall hold this and I shall just summon and then control every blue dragon within a hundred miles. Right. Any uh, any artifact tied to Tiamat. Yeah. <laughs> Mother f***ing Tiamat herself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, she's here. Guess what? She controls all dragons. <laughs> right. She's here. So are the dragons. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So to wrap this up, um, if you're not using dragons, put them in in some way. It literally doesn't matter what game you are running what system you're using what setting you're playing in there's an opportunity to throw in a bit of cool fun terrifying dragon lore mm -hmm. yep as long as there's a fantastical or a magical element dragons probably belong one way or another they probably own whatever it is you are doing or stealing or interested in right all right do you hear that ishan that is uh definitely not me stealing this uh, draconic artifact then we're going to need a new character to roll up because I think they just became a snack. So it's time to move on to the Character Creations Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sends Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. And join the conversation on Discord. This week, Total Party Thrill is brought to you by D&D &D Beyond. It is the official digital tool set and game companion for Dungeons & Dragons. You can use D&D &D Beyond to build characters, track campaigns, run adventures. Uh, now in beta mode, you can... Build encounters. You can look up all the stats of the various permutations of dragons. You can sort by CR or by type. You totally can. Uh, you can get all the books in digital format rather than necessarily buying the hard copy. And you can Google exactly what day uh, a new book hits mm -hmm. D&D Beyond to see when you're going to have access to it. <laughs> So there's also lots of awesome free content on D&D Beyond, things like the basic rules and articles from writers like James J. Heck and videos from Todd Kenrick. And the team is always updating the site with new features, so improvements are always coming. All right, so check it out at dndbeyond.com. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we're building the Dragon Slayer. I can't believe we haven't built one of these yet, uh, but of course this is a character that hunts and kills dragons. I think traditionally this is like the St. George figure, right? Mm -hmm. Like a sword and board strong guy that isn't really necessarily suited for the task, but still somehow figures it out. Yeah, but like in 5th edition D&D, &D, uh, dragons have that breath weapon, flight, three attacks per round, legendary attacks. Uh, the wing buffet is a deck save. You just, you get beaten down very quickly. Mm -hmm. So how do we deal with this? This is an, an interesting build. Let's see what people think. Inquisitive Rogue 11. Okay. Hex, Hexblade Pact of the Blade Warlock 5, Totem okay. Barbarian 4. I like that you're going for Inquisitive and not Assassin because you're accepting the reality that you'll never get 
a surprise round on a dragon. <laughs> that was 100% it, yes. Uh, and also, Inquisitive is one of the few ways to get your sneak attack without an ally. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go uh, Swashbuckler, but that's only when you're adjacent to the dragon, and that's a terrible place to be. <laughs> <laughs> Lousy, yeah. <laughs> All right, so from Barbarian, you can go ahead and just ignore Reckless Attack and Unarmored Defense. You're not going to use them. Mm-hmm. You do Too get risky. three rages a day, though, uh, and Bear Totem is going to give you resistance to every single damage type that a dragon can deal out. Oh, joke's on you. My crystal dragon does psychic. No! Finally foiled. Um, and then more importantly, the or equally importantly, I guess, the barbarian gets advantage on deck saving throws when you can see it coming. And if you can't see a breath weapon coming, you are dead. Open your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> well, the acid melted your eyelid shut. Right. <laughs> So from Rogue, we'll get uh, 6d6 sneak attack, and uh, we have insightful fighting that can trigger if you beat a dragon on a deception check. Fortunately, I actually checked this out in D&D Beyond. <laughs> the only dragons that are trained in deception are green and copper, but your modifier uh, for your insight check is going to be much better than their deception check. Uh, you'll also have cunning action and uncanny dodge. Uh, uncanny dodge is less useful here because... You know, we already get buffed on the deck saves. Yeah, and the the dragons do multi-attacks, and you can only have one of those, and they're actually not massive. It, mm-hmm. They they make up for it in volume. Yeah. Uh, you'll get four expertises. Suggestions are insight for your insightful fighting, perception to look for traps, survival to track in arcana, because that's what tells you information about uh, dragons. And then you'll also get Reliable Talent, which we'll want to take for Athletics and Stealth. But we're really here for Evasion, because Evasion gives you a great chance of completely avoiding damage from most Draconic Breath weapons. So if you succeed, you take no damage whatsoever if it was a deck save. Even if you fail, you take half damage, and this is going to stack with the resistance that you get from Bear, Totem, Barbarian, and you have advantage because of Second Level Barbarian. Uh, the only problems are going to be those con saving throws. I think that's cold. Cold um, damage. And uh, poison. That sounds right. Yeah. And then from Warlock, uh, of course, with Hexblade, we will take uh, Pact Weapon, uh, Rapier, and Longbow. You get three and only three invocations, and these are the three you have to have. Improved Pact Weapon, Eldritch Smite, and Thirsting Blade. That means that your Pact Weapon can be that Longbow, um, and you can attack twice. And here's why. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because Eldritch Smite lets you spend a spell slot to deal extra damage, but it also mm-hmm. knocks creatures that are huge or smaller prone. The biggest problem with a dragon is that it will just fly away from you. But if anything except an ancient dragon flies away from you, you just need to hit it with your longbow, Eldritch Smite, and it is knocked prone with no save, which means it falls immediately five hundred up to 500 feet. It also has to spend half of its movement to stand up, which makes it harder for it to escape you. Uh, even dragon speed isn't that fast. Yeah. you And, of course, your range is, what, 150? Mm-hmm. Uh, you could even take sharpshooter and make it 600 right. <laughs> feet. Um, you don't need warlock in this build. You could swap out these levels, but I love the idea that the dragon tries to leave and you just shoot it out of the sky. Mm-hmm. And if it's an ancient dragon, you you will be able to hurt it a lot, but you won't be able to knock it out of the sky, but that's fine. Don't take on an ancient dragon alone. Right. 
Uh, for spells, you'll want to make sure you grab Booming Blade and Eldritch Blast. Um, go ahead and take the survival spells, things like Shield, uh, of course, Hex to get more damage, Misty Step to avoid uh, you know positioning problems. Counter Spell is great for negating some of the dragon's plans, perhaps their uh, escape plane shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll have to spell magic to take down those wards uh, in the lair and fly if you do need to chase the dragon. Now, remember, if you've got your rage up, you won't be able to cast spells. So decide if you need to use rage first, and you can always end your rage early with a bonus action so that you can start using your spells again. Then, of course, you want to use your curse as a hexblade so you can get extra damage and then expand your crit range to a 19 or 20 um, while you're still attacking with dexterity. So for feats, the ones you want to look at here are resilient con, so you have constitution proficiency, and then either sentinel, so if the dragon tries to escape, your opportunity attack reduces its speed to zero, which will also make it fall if it's flying. Mm-hmm. Or Warcaster so that you can throw out Booming Blade if it tries to leave so that it takes damage as it flies away. Yep. For leveling order, start Rogue One, of course. Uh, Warlock 5 is probably good to uh, make you combat capable than Barbarian and finish off Rogue. Couple of alternatives I want to mention. If I were playing this, I would drop the Rogue entirely and replace it with Monk, which... You, you lose a lot of stuff from Monk, but you also are uh, able to end a Frighten effect on yourself if you fail uh, against that um, Frightful Presence. Uh, and at level 10, you become immune to poison, which just means you negate Green Dragon's uh, breath weapons completely. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think I would play it with Paladin so that I could kind of stick to the... Uh... You know, the the noble tradition of the uh, saints riding out to slay dragons. I think that sounds fun, but then you don't get evasion, in which, in which case you should take shield master, which gives you half of it. If you succeed, oh, well, you take no damage, but if you fail, you still take full. Paladin instead of warlock, though. Oh, interesting. You can't shoot him out of the sky, but that that works great. Right. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to just going to thwack him. You're going to smite. Yeah. Well, you, you can get a flying mount. That's exactly what you should do. It will die. But sure. It, it so died, will I. It died. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill that <laughs> we'll dragon. Fly into its mouth. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at Patreon.com/slash/TotalPartyThrill. All right. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about teaching new players. And in the character creation forge, we're building the headmaster. Well, that's it for episode 224 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. This week, Total Party Thrill is brought to you by Kobold Press. Kobold Press has the complete Kobold Guide to Game Design 2nd Edition. It is the ultimate resource for gamers, game masters, and designers. The any-winning first edition to the Complete Cobalt Guide to Game Design laid out concepts, techniques, and advice for designing role-playing games and enhancing adventures. You know, this says any-winning, but I don't believe that anyone has actually ever won in any. I think it's impossible. No, I think they just got nominated, and that's the honor. Oh, you're right. You're right. That's all you need. Uh-huh. That's like, if you've been nominated, you've won, in my opinion. Even just once. Right, exactly. And, and Even if once. no one has recognized your work for the past five years. Why would you need to be nominated years, again? Well, you already won. Exactly. So this second edition brings together essays from the original volume, 
many of which have been updated to reflect the changing game design landscape. There are also new essays by veteran designers Jeff Grubb of Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms, and Guild Wars, Kelly Pollock of Midgard Sagas and Empire of the Ghouls, Amber Scott of D&D and Eberron, and Ray Valise of the Kobold Guide to Magic. So you'll get practical, thought-provoking essays on world-building, on creating magic systems, on conflict and compelling stories, on what to expect when you work as a design professional, and so much more. My favorite thing about role-playing games is that I am now reading essays and they are actually provoking thought, unlike um, all of college. Oh no. No. Don't, don't get thoughts. <laughs> Stay an automaton. With me. <laughs> There are conceptual chapters that examine what game design is and how good design can create the best games, and there are concrete examples that provide models to help you create well-rounded designs and exciting adventures. So get the Complete Cobalt Guide to Game Design, 2nd Edition, now at cobaltpress.com.